Welcome to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective Podcast. My name is Dominique Pepper, and in this podcast, we interview leaders and expert clinicians in critical care. We ask them to share their insights about relevant critical care topics. And for today, we discuss medical education in the intensive care unit. Before we get started, uh, would you like to introduce yourselves? Sure. Um, so I am Jake McSparren. I am uh, an assistant professor in pulmonary and critical care medicine at the University of Michigan, and I am the associate program director for the pulmonary and critical care fellowship and the associate director for the critical care medicine unit. And I'm Molly Hayes. I'm an assistant professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School and a pulmonary and critical care attending at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center and the Associate Program Director for the Internal Medicine Residency. Maybe you could share your experiences about what encouraged you to pursue this career and what keeps you going. Sure, so I can start. Um, I decided to pursue medical education um, when I was a chief resident. Um, I did my residency and fellowship at Johns Hopkins and during my chief year, I really decided that medical education was my true passion. And it wasn't just that I liked teaching interns and residents and students, but I also really liked thinking about medical education and thinking about uh, best practices in medical education. And I knew then that I really wanted to make this sort of my research career and think about um, best ways to teach and learn. Yeah, I can um, also comment on that. Um, I was always interested in academic clinical medicine. Um, as a, an assistant chief resident and um, sort of throughout training um, and knew that I was passionate about um, staying in academic critical care. Um, when I got to fellowship, I was fortunate to meet uh, some really incredible mentors who had made a career um, in medical education um, within pulmonary and critical care medicine. So people like uh, Rich Schwartzstein and David Roberts, Trish Critic, um, who really pushed me uh, and, and sort of uh, showed me that it was possible to pursue this in an academic way. Um, so with, with their mentorship and, and getting plugged into unique opportunities um, through a fellowship in medical education research at uh, Harvard Med School and the Rapkin Fellowship in Medical Education at uh, Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, uh, I was really able to sort of craft uh, my career in a way that, that linked my clinical interests with uh, my passion for improving education and sort of thinking about uh, how we're how we're training uh, our our students and learners, but also our peers. Great, um, and maybe Molly, you could explain the relationship that you and um, Jake have in terms of pursuing medical education and how the two of you uh, network and uh, uh, how's it working. Sure. So um, Jake and I actually met when we were both um, fellows on the education committee at the American Thoracic Society, and that was probably one of the um, most formative experiences for me. Um, Hank Fessler had sort of suggested that I join this committee and got me on it, and I met Jake and a lot of other wonderful people in medical education and have a lot of great relationships now and mentors across the country because of this and through the section of medical education as well. Um, so Jake and I both worked together at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center where we were core faculty in the Shapiro Institute for Education and Research um, and did a bunch of projects together on critical thinking. Um, one 
specifically was a critical thinking strategic plan where we worked on faculty development products to train um, our peers in internal medicine, emergency medicine, and OBGYN on how to think about critical thinking and then how to actually take the next step and teach it to their learners. Um, and then Jake left BI, sadly, and is now at Michigan, and he and I still work together and collaborate um, on a number of projects in critical thinking and in medical education in general. And that's definitely a plug for the ATS. I mean, they definitely offer a lot of opportunities for fellows and faculty. Um, I want to build on that idea of critical thinking because a lot of physicians feel, you know, I'm in the ICU. I'm obviously thinking, so that must be critical thinking. Maybe you could uh, dis, um, uh, distill that for us and explain what do you mean by critical thinking um, in medical education. Great. So, you know, for us, I think that critical thinking is um, really being deliberate about how you're thinking, and then thinking about your thinking, which is actually the definition of metacognition, which I think is such an important part of critical thinking. And you're absolutely right. We hear a lot that, of course, I'm critically thinking. I'm a doctor. I'm thinking all the time. Um, and one of the challenges with critical thinking is that there actually is not a great unified definition. And people sort of internalize the definition for themselves and what makes sense in, in their situation. So we published a paper in the Annals of the ATS last year about critical thinking in, in critical care. And I many people feel like it's inconsistent that, you know, critical thinking takes a long time and I don't have time to do this in the ICU. And we argue in that paper that, you know, one of the best ways to think critically is to actually slow down. But when I say slow down, I don't mean, you know, take five or ten more minutes. I just mean take 20 or 30 more seconds and actually pause and think about how you're thinking about a case. So we're also trained quickly to think, oh, this is sepsis, they need antibiotics, or this is shock, I need to give fluids or give pressors. But what if you just pause for a second and say, how am I thinking about this? Is this septic shock? Am I sure it's not cardiogenic shock? And just do some, some of your own reflective exercises and your own metacognition. And you can even do this as a team and say, as a team, how are we thinking about this case to make sure that we have the right diagnosis and that we are not... Um, using any sort of cognitive biases or we're not falling prey to cognitive biases uh, when we're taking care of patients. Yeah, no, that's really important. And so, Jake, you had mentioned um, cognitive learning theory. Um, maybe you could explain what that is and how clinicians could be implementing it um, in their training and education. Yeah, I think there's a lot of overlap um, with, with the things Molly just talked about, but um, cognition is 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 really defined as simply acquiring knowledge through experiences or your senses. And cognitive learning theory is, is simply a, a broad theory that explains how we think and process information in order to, to learn. Essentially a way to, to make sense of how we learn information, understanding this can be affected by both internal factors as well as external factors. So really it's just thinking about how we learn information. Uh, it's important for clinicians in training, also, you know, clinicians who are done with their training, um, because aspects of this cognitive learning theory can be applied to improve um, our retention of knowledge and perhaps more importantly, translation of this knowledge into clinical decisions, you know, at the bedside related to your patients. So many of us, uh, you know, studied throughout our training using highlighters, rereading the same paragraphs, um, sort of rote memorization techniques. Um, that, that maybe are not the most effective way to learn, 
um, and utilizing things like spaced learning or retrieval practice um, can help us learn information in a more meaningful way um, and hopefully translate into better decision making making at the bedside. Um, we actually have a, a toolkit that some, some colleagues um, uh, published um, called Cognitive Learning Theory for Clinical Teaching. Um, it was in March of 2018 in Clinical Teacher. Uh, essentially a toolkit to really implement some of these cognitive learning theory components uh, into, you know, rounding and teaching in uh, in the hospital and in the clinics. Maybe you could give us an example. So maybe I have a patient who's in septic shock, they've got the pneumonia, and they're on two or three presses intubated. How would you um, implement cognitive learning theory to get the most out of that situation? Yeah, so I, ideally you've you've thought about these things, you know, beforehand, but uh, as you're teaching about this, you know, patient with your team, um, trying to think about how does this case relate to previous cases? So sort of um, how is this similar to a case you've seen before? Or more importantly, maybe how is this different? How do you know it's not uh, XYZ as, as the case? And then later in the week when you get a, a patient who maybe has something in common, uh, thinking about bringing that patient back up. So rather than sort of forgetting the patient we saw Monday who's now out of the intensive care unit, on Thursday when you receive your other patients and hear about them, um, really linking it back to things you've previously learned. That would be one example. Um, you know, other components are, are really sort of retrieving information, um, using gaming and sort of um, asking questions in a way that make people bring things back from, uh, from previous cases. Some nice strategies also for that. Um, something that we do here is um, called speed teaching, where we actually will have the residents teach. So maybe if we see that case of sepsis, then on Friday we could say, why doesn't everyone, you know, teach us one thing about sepsis um, that they learned from this case? So you're making it active. They're the ones that are teaching. They have to do some retrieval and some generation. Um, and I think that's a nice way. It also sort of forces them to reflect on the case. So it's not just that they took care of this patient and they forget it the next day. They actually have to reflect on what they learned and think about some, not just learning points, but then also teaching points that they can teach the rest of the team. And that's sort of a way to combine both the critical thinking and cognitive learning theory. So it sounds like a lot of reflection and then participation of the learner. Well, one of the um, questions I've had from uh, med students and uh, residents is, you know, I think differently from other people. Like it, some people are visual learners, some like uh, listening to stuff, some like doing stuff. How do you create a, uh, a curriculum or program that addresses the needs of all the different learners that we have? Um, I'll give this to you, Molly. Um, so I think that we do hear a lot about that, like the different sort of teaching and learning styles, and there is actually not great data that that's proven. Um, however, you know, exactly like you're saying, our learners do tell us that all the time. So. I think just trying to keep things as active as possible will help people and allowing them to write notes. You know, you can hand out paper and say, feel free to write notes or not. Some people like to take notes on their phone. Um, we have a lot of residents who are using Evernote now and then sending um, sort of the Evernote uh, text to their peers so that everyone is, is getting this and that keeps them active, sort of writing notes. And if people feel that they are more sort of visual and can learn something better by just reading it, then they're able to read the notes later in the day as opposed to kind of participating in the live didactic session in the morning. So I think just 
giving people permission and empowering them to use whatever strategy works for them is the best way to handle this. Like we don't specifically teach towards different strategies just because as I mentioned, there's not great data that that's actually been proven that people learn in different different ways. Great, I think that's really important. Jake, um, as a, a faculty member, you obviously have fellows coming through your training program and I'm sure you've heard as I myself probably said in the first uh, month or so, I've just got so much that I've got to do. I'm trying to you know, learn so much. I've got so many duties. Do I have time to uh, learn as much as you expect me to? What would your response be to, you know, first-year fellows or even maybe, you know, third-year fellows who feel a little bit jaded um, about uh, education? Yeah, I think that's a that's a great question um, and something that, that I try to model and, and encourage um, others to model and things that my mentor has modeled is, that you don't need to know everything, and it's okay to look things up. And there's a reason, uh, you know, why so many clinicians are using UpToDate, and uh, and you're not supposed to have everything memorized. Um, so remembering your core concepts and thinking about things in a physiologic way, sort of asking the right questions about each case, um, can guide you to use the information you know. Uh, and you can really, you know, spend only a few minutes a day if that's all you have even though it may not feel like learning because you're not sitting down in a lecture like you're used to or in a conference room, you know, being taught about a specific uh, topic, every patient you're caring for, all the decisions you make, the way you approach those cases and discuss it with your, your colleagues and your faculty members, um, that's learning and that's, that's really active learning. Um, you know, not to say, it, you know, we shouldn't have dedicated didactic sessions, but a lot of the things we're doing on a day-to-day -day basis can really be used um, as great learning opportunities. And even after fellowship, it's not as though there's some something magical about three years where all of a sudden we think you've learned pulmonary and critical care medicine. Um, you know, I'm, I'm learning every day um, from experts in different areas in critical care about interstitial lung disease, pleural disease, um, mainly by managing those patients and asking questions and, and really sort of using those around you. Um, to, to learn in a way that is is a little different than what you're you're used to sort of sitting down and having information given to you. I think that is a big shift when you get to fellowship uh, about how you learn. It it, it shifts to a more um, you know you're learning while you're while you're doing all of these things and taking care of different patients. And you may not see every you know every disease process that you need to to learn about to be a well-rounded pulmonary and critical care physician during that training program. But but you can certainly um, continue to learn throughout your career. Yeah, so stressing the importance of lifelong learning. Molly, um, one of the criticisms that I've heard from um, uh, attendings is, you know, where is the evidence base um, for, you know, medical education or how do we create uh, evidence-based learning? I mean, we have a lot of RCTs and studies about uh, certain components of critical care. Um, how do we create an evidence-based learning where we have studies that show that uh, certain learning techniques are better than others and which ones we should implement? Yeah, I think that's a great question and something that we definitely struggle with um, in the field. And I will say that a way to do that is to recognize that, you know, medical education is a field and that we who are in it should be approaching it um, with scientific rigor. So I was sort of inspired by people at the ATS and then here at Beth Israel when I came for faculty to actually get more training and did a fellowship on medical education research and to 
to really take it to the next level because just like anything in science, we need evidence and we need well-conducted studies and we need multi-institutional data and that's something that um, being involved in education in the ATS allows us to do. It's a really powerful group that we can study best ways of teaching and learning at multiple institutions. And I think that's, that's what we need. That's what this field needs to move forward. It's challenging, though, because medical education is a little bit messy. You know, our laboratory is our ICU. It's our students and our residents um, and our fellows and our peers. And we can't control everything like you can in the laboratory. So for example, we did a study where we randomized residents to who were in different units to receive different types of didactics. One was a simulated role play and one was just sort of a typical small group didactic with a whiteboard. And you know, we planned for everything, but then of course one of the residents got sick and another resident was called in to cover for him. That resident had already had the other session on the other side. Like this is real life and it's it's messy. So you can't control for everything and I think we have to do the best we can. But that being said, we should be approaching all of these studies with scientific rigor. So true. So how would you envision um, future studies uh, being conducted or how would you like them to be conducted? Yeah, I think the more multi-institutional work we can do, the better. Um, you know, learning from ArdsNet, for example, I, I think that we should be doing education studies at big institutions and getting as many people um, in them as we can so that we really can have meaningful data. So, you know, the ATS in the section on medical education is working on this now. Um, we have lots of different sort of working groups that um, Graham Carlos is in charge of and working on helping people do research at their local sites and then kind of join forces to have multi-institutional projects. I think another um, way to improve this is having uh, institutions recognize medical education as a field and support it. Um, I'm lucky where I am that it is recognized as a field in a career pathway and we have programs here that provide formal training in medical education research, but not all institutions have that. So I think we need that. We need institutions to recognize the importance of this and to provide fellows and faculty with opportunities to get advanced training and provide them with support, whether that's salary support, time, et cetera, um, to be able to do this research. So, um, Molly, you mentioned the importance of, you know, so-called paying the piper. And, Jake, I was wondering maybe you could share your experiences because a lot of fellows, you know, are interested in medical education and they it's a noble um, uh, endeavor and they want to improve uh, the environment they're in. But when it comes down to brass tacks, I mean, they realize that some of their colleagues go into private or they go into certain research fields and they're able to get better funding, better uh, salaries. Um, how would you like the environment to change or what experiences have you had um, that have allowed you to continue pursuing medical education and been able to still pay the bills, so to speak? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a good point. I think in any academic medical field currently, it's, it's a tough uh, environment for funding, whether that's research or clinical work or medical education. Um, I think I have been fortunate to um, take on administrative roles related to education um, that allow me to do work that I enjoy doing that are related to my clinical interests and to education, but also give me some protected time um, to to 
carry out some more academic or scholarly work uh, related to education, whether that's working on you know new curricular materials for trainees or developing CME courses um, or other work. And then the the way this happens is really through networking. So at your own institution, you you know at least I started out by sort of volunteering to do um, work related to education. So I was offering to teach small group sessions or to, you know, run seminars for the Academy of Medical Educators. And not that you're being, you know, paid for those things and it certainly takes extra time, but it's a it's a, a worthwhile investment because later on you're known as someone who is an expert in this area or who is interested in this area and when opportunities come up for, you know, leading courses or um taking on leadership roles within a fellowship or within a clinical division, um, you know, people look to you as someone who has, who has already stepped up and, and taken on those roles. Um, so you're able to sort of carve out a bit of protected time moving forward. And that's networking locally, but also uh, nationally. So, so Molly's already mentioned um, the section on medical education and the education committee at ATS. Uh, you know, I've been fortunate to, to have great mentors there. And getting on these committees and, you know, putting yourself out there to, to run things at the international conference um, or to, to carry out projects, you know, related to education through the American Thoracic Society um, remotely really plugs you in to, to have these opportunities and to become, um, I think, a known figure in the, in the field. Um, and it really sort of uh, pays itself forward by giving you a bit more protected time in the future. Um, but it's you know it it is something you have to put the investment in, and it's not it's not a perfect setup where you can um, you know pay all the bills that way. But I think um, there it, it it works for now. I think in the future, different institutions are exploring um, sort of uh, the the value unit of education. So currently, most academic institutions require a certain number of hours teaching. Um, that's defined really broadly, but perhaps in the future. Those who really take this on as a career will will receive some kind of um, compensation um, related to how much time they put in and the quality of the work related to education. Um, so not really an RVU-based system, but maybe a you know medica medical education value unit um, MVU or something like that. Um, but that that's not quite there, at least at most institutions. And how would you see that being assessed? Um, because from the institution's point of view. They can say, you know, a clinician saw so many patients, so I can give them RVUs. How do you assess the worth or benefit of uh, medical education uh, to uh, residents or fellows? Yeah, it's a great, uh, great question. So, a, a lot of the, you know, evaluation methods that are being used, sort of on on both the trainee side and on the faculty side, are sort of um, these, uh, you know, forms rating you out of five. How did you do? I don't think that's a, a necessarily uh, an accurate uh, way to assess this. I think ideally you would have formal uh, evaluators, and these would be trained members of your division or members of the, the community in, in an education institute or an academy who are able to observe uh, people's work and really give you an objective rating of their material. Um, so certainly some of it will be related to the time you spend if you're teaching in a course that meets three times a week for four months, that's something you can objectively measure. And if your students are performing well, um, your evaluations look strong, and you have some um, objective measure. Um, and there are validated tools out there to um, you know, grade not only lectures, but also small, small group teaching or 
rounding at the bedside, all of these things um, can be assessed, but it requires a bit of a shift in the culture um, and not only using formative feedback where people tell you how to get better, but also some kind of summative feedback. Um, and I'm not talking about feedback for the learners. I mean feedback for those who are doing the teaching, so some objective measure um, of how you're performing. And I think there, there are ways to do that, whether it's with simulated encounters or just um, trained raters. That would be something that, that could be used in the future. We're not quite there. I think some institutions, again, are exploring this more than others, and it's an exciting time, but uh, you know, increasingly people are going into clinician educator roles um, and getting some component of their salary paid for because they are spending time teaching. As to to add just to add to what Jake said, something that is great but really difficult is to actually try to assess this on the patient level. So, you know, we hope if we do a good job teaching that it will ultimately benefit the patient. I mean, that's really hard to show and prove, but we try to do that with some of the communication teaching that we do to say if we teach our learners to be great communicators in the ICU, you know, can we actually see if this affected the patients and their families. And everything that Jake mentioned is really hard to do, and then this is really hard, too, to see if this matters on the patient and family level. Yeah, I think it's really important bringing it back uh, to the patient. Molly, I was going to ask you um, a slightly different topic. Um, there's a lot of different mediums of education, a lot of online, a lot of uh, um, resources that uh, clinicians can access uh, in paper. How do you ensure that your learners are getting quality uh, resources? I mean, a lot of learners could go on YouTube, could go on blogs. Um, and how do we, I wouldn't say regulate it, but how do we quality control to make sure that uh, the medicine that we're practicing is actually uh, of good quality? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I don't have uh, a perfect answer. I think it's it's really hard because no matter how much we control, people are still going to go home and search for their own things or, or, you know, find a YouTube video that they think is, is best. Um, what we do here is we have um, a wiki site, so anything in the ICU that we want to put up as a resource um, for them to learn will sort of push to the wiki site. So we have videos that um, have been vetted by faculty. We put, like, top articles on there. Um, we, you know, put some things that are on Twitter that, like, ATS is tweeting about. Um, We'll put those things up there. We also create a lot of our own videos here that, you know, residents do that, but they have a faculty mentor, and um, we usually have a faculty panel who helps us decide what content should go in the video and then um, is really sort of monitoring these videos to make sure that the final product is actually true to the original script. Um, and I will say that ATS also has a great collection of videos um, the Babel series, best of the ATS uh, lecture video series. Um, they have great, great, great um, topics in them, like bronchoscopy, um, in central line insertion, whole range of videos that are excellent, and I refer learners to those a lot. So for me, you know, it's referring learners to trusted sites like the ATS and all the educational content on there. I back and I and I agree with, and then. Like I said, for us here at Beth Israel, we sort of pushed a lot of stuff onto the residents um, via the wiki. Gotcha. That's uh, pretty useful, and hopefully our listeners will go and look at the, those resources that you mentioned. Um, we're starting to wrap up now, and Jake, I just wanted to ask you if there's anything else that we covered that uh, you wanted to just dig in a bit deeper 
um, or questions that I may have asked Molly that uh, you wanted to address as well? No, I don't think so. I think um, we covered some, you know, a lot of a lot of great information. I think it's it's good to know there's a lot of uh, resources out there. I think I would uh, echo uh, a lot of what Molly said. Uh, the the piece that she wrote with uh, Rich Schwartzstein and Annals of uh, ATS about critical thinking and critical care is really really a useful resource um, and something that I think many of us have not thought too much about um, and that there are resources out there. Um, toolkits uh, related to how we teach and how we learn and how we can sort of make our everyday rounding or everyday visits in the clinic more educational, not only for, for ourselves, but also for uh, the trainees. Gotcha. And the same for you, Molly. Is there anything that we haven't been able to cover uh, during this podcast? No, I, I think it's been great. And I um, just hope that people feel sort of encouraged and inspired, um, you know, Jake and I love what we do, and I feel very fortunate to, you know, have him as a as a colleague. And even though we're not at the same institution anymore, we're still able to collaborate a lot and write a lot and do a lot of research together, which is awesome. And although pathways can be a little bit challenging for some people or a little bit rocky or circuitous, especially in medical education, I think it's, it's really worth it um, to be able to work with great colleagues and then to really feel like you're making an impact on learners and patients. So I would just encourage everyone who's interested in medical education, um, whether you're a fellow or faculty, to just kind of keep pushing forward and keep doing it because it is the most rewarding field. Yeah, well, uh, we've been very fortunate to have both of you on this podcast, uh, two powerhouses in medical education. Uh, I'm going to wrap it up and just ask Jake any uh, one last word or pearl that you want to share uh, with fellows of critical care uh, physicians, and then uh, to Molly as well after that. Uh, yeah, we had we had talked about sort of any any closing pearls already, and I think uh, we we share uh, some ideas on this. So the the three three things we came up with as real pearls for trainees and also um, you know practicing clinicians. Uh, number one, stay curious about what you're doing. Um, you know, every every patient we see can really um, let you let you dig deep into things you haven't thought about in a while or things you haven't uh, haven't seen before. And if you lose your curiosity, uh, it's really easy to to not be enthusiastic and excited about what you're doing on a day to day basis. Uh, the second is to embrace uncertainty uh, and and call out inconsistencies. So if you're not sure what's going on, that's okay, and you shouldn't make something up just to um, sound like you know what you're talking about. Uh, many of the cases we see in the ICU. Uh, are not simple. Um, so being uncertain is okay. You still need to think carefully and critically about the, the underlying pathophysiology and what's going on. But if you're calling something distributive shock, um, but on exam that doesn't make sense because the patient is, you know, really cool and clamped down, that's an inconsistency that you can say out loud and call out and, and uh, try to make sense of that. Uh, and the third thing uh, we came up with, and this, you know, uh, we worked together for, for many years and continue through ATS with a lot of other great people on the education committee and the section on medical education. But, uh, you know, clinically and academically, to, to really rely on a team, uh, you can't be, uh, you know, uh, a, a great clinician without working with a, a really um, extensive multidisciplinary team. And I think that, that goes for sort of any setting that you can work in. Um, you're not supposed to know everything. You're not supposed to be able to do everything yourself. 
Um, but if you surround yourself with a team and you all support each other, um, you take better care of your patients. Well, those are really fantastic pearls. Uh, Molly, any final words to this to you? No, I I agree with all those. I think those are those are our top three. Okay, perfect. Thank you both very much. A big thank you to Drs. McSparren and Hayes, and a big thank you to all of you for listening to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective podcast. I'm Dominic Pepper for the American Thoracic Society.